0: appreciate that good singing. Open your Bibles tonight to Luke chapter number 4. Luke chapter number 4. I, uh, I, have, I have been following the Bible reading plan. I don't know if you have. That is associated with our daily devotional. And uh, in reading this passage of Scripture, which is where we're at uh, in that, we've just about finished up the entirety of the year. I noticed reading through this chapter a theme. And I want to spend a few moments and preach on it this evening. ...that is prevalent in Luke chapter number 4. Of course, this is the beginning, the early days of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it is a time when, by and large, His preaching and His ministry is accepted by most of the people... Uh, that he's coming into contact with. There are some exceptions, and we'll see and read about some of them here in this passage. But uh, the common folk were accepting of the message of the Lord Jesus in that first year of His earthly ministry. And that is sort of the time period of Luke chapter number 4. In fact, it begins with the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. But I, I want you to notice a theme that you'll see all through this chapter... And I want to preach on five different principles that speak and inform to this theme. Let's begin reading in verse number 16. The Word of God says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this Scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this, another opportunity to be in your house. I pray that you'd speak to my heart tonight. Pray that you'd deal with me tonight. And Lord, in doing so, I pray that you'd also deal with all those that are under the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that You'd stir their hearts. I pray You'd draw them closer unto You. I pray that, Lord, You'd give them an anchor, the anchor of Your Word to place their faith upon. And I pray that they'd be drawn into a closer communion with You. Lord, we love You. We thank You for the time You've given us. pray that You'd bless everything that transpires. For Your glory and honor, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In verse number 22, the Word of God says that after hearing the Lord Jesus uh, read Isaiah 61... Verses one and most of verse number two, it's interesting. I I don't, I I very rarely read the uh, notes in my Schofield Bible. That's not really why I have a Schofield Bible. I have a Schofield Bible because every Schofield Bible looks the same. You can get, if it's an old Schofield, somebody say amen to that. You can get one today and it'll look a certain way and you can get one from 20 years ago and it'll look the same way. And listen neighbor, I just like things that don't change. Somebody say amen to that. But I'm not necessarily a, a big endorser of uh, Mr. Schofield's notes, but he does note the fact uh, with great interest that uh, the Lord Jesus stops halfway through Isaiah 61 one two. The close of verse 19 where it says to preach the acceptable year of the Lord is not where uh, chapter uh, 61 verse number 2 of the book of Isaiah ends. In fact, it goes on to talk about the day of vengeance of our God. Why did the Lord Jesus stop when He did? Because He wasn't there to bring about the day of vengeance at that time. He was there to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. When He comes back the second time, He's coming back to bring in the day of vengeance. Somebody say amen to that. He's not coming back as a meek Galilean, but as a conquering King of kings, Lord of lords. And so he reads this passage of Scripture uh, in the synagogue. And when he closed the book, everybody was staring at him, their eyes were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, verse 21, This day is this Scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness, notice this next phrase, They wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. You'll find that this is one instance, but if you scan this passage, this chapter, you'll find that uh, this idea of the words of Christ features prominently throughout it. In fact, notice it with me. We'll just sort of jump around a little bit. Look back at verses 3 and 4. The Bible says, The devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus did what? He answered him, saying what? It is written that man shall not live By bread alone, but by every word of God. When you look a little bit further down in verse 15, it says, He taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. When you come down to uh, verse number 32, it says, They were astonished at His doctrine, for His word was with power. When you come down to verse uh, number 35, the the Lord is talking to a devil, and it says, And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold by peace, and come out of him. And of course, the devil came out, In verse 36, it says, "...they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out." And then you see down in uh, verse number 39, he's uh, in the home of Simon Peter. And Simon Peter's mother-in-law is getting ready to die from a fever. And it says, "...and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and ministered unto them." And of course, Christ himself says in verse number 43, if you've got a red-letter Bible... You can see it there in blazing red color. He says, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. All of these references to the words of Christ are in fulfillment to what He said and what He read in verse number 18. Notice this verse again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to what? To preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to what? preach. Come on, help me now. And to what? Preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. And to do what? To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Luke chapter number 4 is all about the power of the words of Christ. Now, I would remind you tonight that when we talk about the words of Christ, we're talking about something that is completely inseparable from what we call the Word of God. You see, as John pointed out, we talked about this morning in the morning service, uh, Christ was not just the author of the Word, Christ is the Word. Christ is the, is the physical manifestation of the Word of God. This, by the way, sometimes, listen, when you believe you have a perfect Bible, and I believe I have a perfect Bible, I don't believe what Mr. Schofield says is perfect. I don't believe the appendix is perfect. I don't believe that the index is perfect. But I believe every single word from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation or or 22-21. I'll get it said here in a second. Somebody say amen. Every single one from the first end to the last amen is inspired, preserved, and inerrant in every way, shape, fashion, and form. And sometimes when you preach that, some folks, I know there's a lot of folks, well-meaning folks and folks that, that, that do love the Lord, but uh, they bought into this whole thing of other versions of the Bible. And sometimes I think they wonder why we are so passionate about this King James issue. And the reason is because it's not a matter of preference to me, it's a matter of where, whether we have a perfect Bible or not. That's an important principle. Listen, uh, I ain't never met anyone that's NIV only or New King James only or ESV only, or ATV only, or SUV only. I ain't never met any... Well, I've met a few folks that's SUV only. Now listen, and we, we sort of say it tongue-in-cheek, but it, it, it matters. And i tell you why it matters. Because it's not really a matter of what, what letters are printed on the spine of the Bible. It's a matter of whether we believe we have a perfect Bible or not. I believe my King James Bible is perfect. And I've never ha- found anyone to be able to show me otherwise. And if I, I believe this, if the English-speaking people don't have a perfect Bible in the King James Bible, then they don't have a perfect Bible. Let me go a step further and say this. If the English-speaking people don't have a perfect Bible in the King James Bible, I'm not sure anybody has a perfect Bible. People say, well, the originals. Well, there ain't no originals. Uh, you go find me the originals, and we'll talk about it. And you say, well, there's copies of the originals. Well, I thought we were accused of worshiping leather and paper for believing in the King James Bible. Now they're telling me that they worship uh, animal skins and parchment and ink. The fact is that there's a lot of originals that ain't everybody and never and anybody laid hands on. Show me where those originals are that God wrote on Mount Sinai. Right? Show me where those originals are that Jehudi cut out with a penknife in the book of Jeremiah and threw into the fire. Show me where those originals are. The fact of the matter is, nobody's ever had, quote unquote, the originals. They've had had portions of the originals, no doubt, through uh, human history. But the fact is, if God didn't preserve His Word, then we don't have it. But if God did preserve it, He had to have done it perfectly, or it's not preservation. I'm saying it's a matter of whether we have a Bible or not. It's an important thing. And I'm not saying people that don't believe... Uh, in the King James Bible is the inerrant perfect Word of God that they're hate-mongering people. I don't necessarily believe they hate the Lord. I don't necessarily believe that they're uh, quote-unquote bad people, although in a sense we're all bad people. Amen? But I do believe they're misguided in the sense that they they claim they have God's Word, but they don't have any confidence in it. They don't believe it to be perfect. I believe my Bible is perfect. And I've never been able to find anybody to show me otherwise. Listen, I'm King James only. I ain't mad about it, but I am sure about it. I am certain about it. I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at me. I ain't mad at nobody about it. But I am certain about it. I do believe it's important. I do believe it matters. Because what it comes down to is not King James is a king. It's not even the 48 men that translated the King James Bible. What it comes down to is whether God keeps His promises or not. Does He keep it? When He said He would preserve His Word from this wicked generation, did He do it or didn't He do it? Now, if you say that you you believe you had that there, no Bible is perfect then you're claiming he didn't do it and you say well that's not God's fault men have corrupted it yeah but God promised to preserve it that's what God didn't just promise to inspire it you listening now God promised to preserve it if it's not preserved then God didn't keep his promise you say well it is preserved in the originals but you ain't got the originals and neither do I and neither does anybody. I'll tell you a big secret. Whenever they talk about the originals, they ain't even talking about one document. There's over 5,040 extant manuscripts uh, of of Scripture. They're not even talking about a singular text when they say the originals. The fact is, if you want to hold a perfect Bible in your hand, your only chance to do it is this King James Bible. It's your only chance to do it. I believe it matters. It's important. And part of the reason I, 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 and I, again, I'm not mad about it. I think there's a lot of folks that ain't King James only. They're King James ugly. Amen. <laughs> and, and I don't think there's any, I don't think that the Lord's glorified by that. We don't, we can be right without being mad. And we ought not have a, a hostile, combative attitude towards people. If someone does not believe like we do on that issue, and if we're confident in our position, we ought to do everything we can to try to present our position, show them the truth. Uh, not be mad at them, not fuss at them, not throw them under a bus, not be rude to them, but try to show them truth. I think a lot of times when people meet it with a combative spirit, it's because they're insecure about their position. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to be so ugly and so nasty about it. I, I, listen, I'm King James only, but I don't want to be King James ugly. I want to have the right spirit about it, but it's an important issue. Because it really, when you boil it down, it's a question of whether we have a Bible or not. To say we have an imperfect Bible is really to say we have no Bible at all, because who has the authority to determine what is inspired and what's not inspired? In other words, this Bible is either absolute or it's obsolete. You can't have it both ways. It's got to be one or the other. And you say, well, preacher, it might. it's probably just some obscure passage in the book of Leviticus. Well, I'd say this, that obscure passage in the book of Leviticus is every bit as inspired and inerrant as John 3.16. And if it didn't need to be there, God wouldn't have put it there. But beyond that, how do you possibly know? If you believe that your Bible is truth that's mingled with error, then how do you know what's inspired? How do you know what's not inspired? It's either absolute or it's obsolete. It means nothing to us. Either our Bible is perfect or we have no foundation for our faith. We have no anchor whereby we can tether ourselves from the winds of secular humanism and of human impulse. The Bible, listen, either it's perfect or it don't mean anything. Either, And by the way, it's either preserved or it's inspiration don't mean anything. If God inspired His Word but didn't preserve it, what good did that do anybody? Listen, I believe God loves this generation just like He loved that generation. And and listen, the only thing you get from riding hobby horses is splinters. i got no interest in beating you over the head with it. I, I think most of the people, if not everybody in the room, probably understands what I'm saying here. What I'm getting at is this. It's an important issue, and here's why. Because the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. What you say about the Word of God is equivalent to what you're saying about Christ. They are one and the same in nature. They are synonymous in in spirit and in nature and in purpose and in message. And as such, when we're talking about the words of Christ, we're talking about the Word of God. By the way, when we're talking about the works of Christ, we're talking about the Word of God because He is the Word. And I could, listen, there could be a lot more preaching done in this chapter than what I'm going to do tonight... But I want you to notice five ways in which the Word of God presents itself as powerful when in different situations in Luke chapter number 4. And I'm going to give you these, and then I'm going to close. Look back at verse number 1. The Bible says this, Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. When they were ended, he afterward hungered. The devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God... Command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, "It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God." Say number one tonight that the word of God has power over the devil himself. Over the devil himself, there are three temptations that Satan presents uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. The first, of course, appeals to his physical hunger, and he was physically hungry. The Bible says that that he was in hunger. And uh, it, by the way, it's interesting because all three of the things that the devil tempts him concerning, not necessarily what he asks Christ to do, but what he offers to Christ in these temptations, none of the three of them are wrong in and of themselves. The first, he offers him bread to eat. And he says, turn these stones into bread. Well, it's not wrong to eat bread. In fact, uh, when they observed the Lord's Supper, and when the Lord gave the Lord's Supper to the disciples to give to the church, it's the breaking of bread. It's not wrong to eat bread. Uh, we have it recorded many times that Christ broke bread. But what was the devil trying to do? He was trying to get him to put his physical desires over his spiritual needs. He was in the wilderness fasting and praying. Uh, he would leave this place, by the way, and go in the strength of the Spirit. Why was that? It wasn't just because he was God the Son. It was because he had been spending 40 days in prayer and fasting in the wilderness. Then you might say, well, preacher, he didn't need that. Well, you take it up with him. He's the one who decided to spend 40 days in the wilderness. So evidently, he saw spiritual nourishment and benefit through that process. And over and over again in the Gospels, he would come away, come apart into a wilderness or into a mountain place to pray and to spend time with the Lord. What the devil's trying to get him to do is to forfeit his spiritual strength for a fleshly satisfaction. Comes to him a second time, and he shows him in a moment all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, if you'll just bow down and worship me, All this shall be thine, for all of it is delivered unto me, and I give it to whomsoever I will. By the way, the devil will always come to you with a kernel of truth. He is the God of this world. He does exercise influence and authority over world kingdoms. But we have to remind ourselves, he may be the God of this world, but there's a God of the universe. Somebody say amen to that. Who's sovereign even over uh, the machinations of the devil himself. And so he comes to him and he says, just bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all these kingdoms. Well, in fact, it's not wrong for Christ to reign over all the kingdoms of the world, because one day He's going to do it. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But what he was trying to get Him to do was to give up the immediate, uh, or give up the immediate will of God for a prospective glory. He was trying to say, uh, you can have all this that God has laid up in store for you right now if you'll just bow the knee before me. And you know, impatience and the impulse to want things in immediate satisfaction is one of the great downfalls and, and one of the great hindrances and one of the great weaknesses of the human spirit. But a lot of people derailed because they didn't want to wait on God's timing. They wanted it now. They wanted it now. And then he takes him up to a high pinnacle of the temple. And he says to him that it's written in the Word of God. Now the devil's quoting Scripture. Whew. We're in a mess when the devil starts quoting Scripture. You say, does the devil really do that? Yeah, turn on TBN. Yeah. So he starts quoting Scripture and he says, you know, it's written that uh, the angels will bear thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. He says, won't you, off the pinnacle of this temple, cast yourself down and the angels will bear thee up. A lot of people say what he's trying to get him to do is to kill himself. Prematurely, but I don't think that was the case because the devil knew and Christ knew that those angels would never let a toe of the Son of God hit that pavement. So what was he getting at? Well, and I've told you this before, I need to hurry and hasten, but uh, that prophecy in the book of Psalms don't have nothing to do with me or you. If you go up to the top of this building and you quote that scripture with all the boldness and faith and conviction that you can possibly muster and you jump and swan dive onto our parking lot, you're going to go, And die, probably. Ain't no angel going to bear you up. God's going to look down and say, is he that stupid? Ain't no angel going to bear you up. But they would have Christ. Why? Because there was a divinely foreordained place of His crucifixion, of His death upon the cross of Calvary. And the angels were going to minister. They're a flaming fire and they minister unto Him to see to it that He made His way to Calvary. All around him at all times were beset enemies that wanted to short-circuit the providential plan of God. But the angels of God protected and vouchsafed him until he went up Calvary's hill and died a sacrifice for you and I. So this prophecy was messianic in nature. It applied specifically to the Son of God, to the chosen of the Lord, to the Messiah of Israel. And what the devil was trying to get him to do was to manifest himself as the Messiah in a way that was evidentiary and provable and observable to those that are around him. In other words, he was trying to get him to subvert the plan of God and to show himself unto Israel so that they would uh, accept him by what they saw versus by faith. And you know, in all three of these occasions, the Lord replies in the same way. Notice it with me. Verse 4, Jesus answered him saying, It is written, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Verse number 8, Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Verse number 12, Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And I like verse 13, when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Now Christ is the Son of God. He's the Son of God now, He was the Son of God then. He's the Creator of the world now, He was the Creator of the world then. All things were created by Him and for Him now, and the same was true then. And He had the power, if He had wanted to, to speak the devil out of existence. But He didn't do that. Instead, He reclined and took refuge in the power of God's Word to thwart temptation and the devices of Satan. Why did he do this? Here's why. Uh, He left us an example, he said, in the book of John. He said, I've left you, in in John chapter 13, he said, I have left you an example that you should do likewise. Uh, Peter said that he is our example in suffering. The fact is, he met the devil on those terms because you and I are going to have to meet the devil on those terms. And he proved to us that the Word of God is sufficient, it has power over the devil. Now let me say very clearly: the word of God is not some magical incantation; it's not abracadabra. Listen, if you think that, read over in the book of Acts where there was a uh, seven sons of Seva vagabond Jews that decided they was going to cast out some devils, and they go to them, and they didn't know God, they didn't know anything about God, they didn't know anything about the gospel. They just had heard Paul was doing it, and so they go to these devils or this man that is full of devils, and they said, "We adjure thee by Jesus whom Paul preacheth," and then they waited. I don't know what they expected to happen. i tell you what happened. The man that had them devils leapt upon him, hurt him, left him abused and wounded and whooped him. You know why? Because it's one thing to know his name, it's another to know him. It's another to know him. You may know all about him and still not know him. And they tried to use the name of Jesus like Open Sesame or Abracadabra. They tried to use it as an incantation and invoke it Without having any relationship with Christ himself, and it was weak, it was, you understand that's the name that, that, that 's the name that 's above every name. you understand that's the name that's the heavenly name. but if it 's spoken by someone that has no knowledge of Christ and if it 's spoken just merely as an incantation and not as an expression of effectual dependence upon him and his promise, if it 's just something that somebody banters out, uh, it, it has no meaning, it has no effect. The devil's not scared of syllables, he's scared of the Savior. It's not abracadabra, but what it is, is representative of divine truth. And so in as much as we lean upon divine truth, every single one, by the way, of those scriptures that the Lord Jesus quoted were relevant and applicable and powerful to the situation that he was in. He wasn't just saying, here's some scripture, now flee from me. He was saying, this right here is why I don't have to yield to your temptation." You say, I need to make these stones bread, but man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You're saying that I need to bow down and worship you, but God's already said I'm to worship Him and Him alone. You're saying that I need to manifest myself as the Messiah, as the Son of God, but the Scripture says we're not to tempt the Lord thy God. Every one of them related directly to His... Situation. Here's what I'm saying, and I've heard a lot of people say this. Well, if you're going through a hard time, if you're tempted, if you've got some kind of spiritual oppression going on, well, just quote Scripture out there and just say the name of Jesus and that's going to do so. I don't believe that's so. I don't believe it's so. I believe that what does do something is for us to rest effectually on the truth of God's Word. It shores us up. It gives us strength. It gives us the motivation. It gives us the foundation to resist temptation. Otherwise, Christ would have quoted just any scripture. But he quoted scriptures that gave divine, biblical, authoritative reason why he did not have to relent to what Satan wanted. fact is, the Word of God has power over the devil, not as an incantation, but as an instruction. And if we'll rely on its truth and its teaching, then God will enable us through that to resist temptation. Look a little further in this chapter. I could probably quit there. But I ain't taking no polls, so don't amen that. (laughs) Look down at verse number uh, 23. So the Word of God has power over the devil. But notice what it says in verse number 23. Now in verse 22, uh, he has, the Bible says that all these people in the synagogue have just said, oh how gracious and how wonderful are the words of the Son of God. This is how Jesus replies, verse 23. And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in my country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, and unto a woman that was a widow. Many lepers were in Israel in the time of Eliseus the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman, the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. He passing through the midst of them went his way. Now listen, I've had sermons go bad before. <laughs> I have. I've been, there's been times, and some of y'all been in some of them, where I've been preaching, and all of a sudden, man, I say something, I hope it's in the Spirit of God, I hope it's of the Lord. I find this, that when it's not in the Lord, I ain't got no boldness. Uh, I may have meanness, but I ain't got no boldness. <laughs> but if I say it in the Lord, there's a holy boldness. There's been times I've been preaching, and son, I mean the Spirit of God's been moving, and people shouting, and people in the glory, and then all of a sudden you say something, and a cold chill runs through that sanctuary that'll freeze the center aisle. I've had sermons go bad before, but I've never had a sermon turn the way that Jesus' sermon did here. He's in the synagogue, and he reads Isaiah 61, and they say, What gracious and wonderful words! And he says, You like that? You ain't seen nothing yet. He says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, physician, heal thyself. Uh, you can do all those things everywhere else. Well, why don't you do it here? Jesus says, I'll tell you why I won't do it here. Because you won't have it done here. Because no prophet is in his own country. And then he says something that really, really rubs them the wrong way. He says there were a lot of widows during the days of Elijah that needed miracles, but it wasn't to a Jewish widow that Elijah went. It was to a dweller in Sidon, a Gentile. And he says there were a lot of lepers in the days of Elisha that could have been healed in the land of Israel, but it wasn't to a Jew that Elisha went. It was to a Gentile when he healed Naaman the Syrian. What he's saying is this, those that wants it, gets it. And those that don't want it, don't get it. And he's reminding them, that just because he's sent as the shepherd over the lost sheep of Israel, and just because his primary ministry is to the Jews, that doesn't mean that God is going to force them to receive and accept his witness, nor does it mean that God is compelled to minister unto them if they won't have him and if they won't receive him. And that cold wind blew through the synagogue. And they were filled with wrath. Why? Because he had nerve enough to tell them that them being Jewish wasn't enough to get him in good with God. And all of a sudden they have no interest in what he has to say. And they start clamoring and they drive him out upon a hillside and they would cast him off and kill him if they could. But them angels, they scuttle him away before you had the opportunity. Let me say that the Word of God has power over the devil. But number two, the Word of God has power to disturb. You remember what Christ said when He was talking about His purpose and His ministry? He said, I'm come not to send peace, but a sword. He said, I'm come to, to, to send a fire and what will I if it already be kindled? What he was saying is this, he would go on to elaborate and say that the message that I preach is going to set mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and father-in-law against son-in-law. It's going to set brothers against one another and it's going to divide houses. He's saying the word that I'm preaching unto you, it's not something that's going to leave you comfortable. It's something that's going to disrupt and disturb you. And oh my, I, oh my, I need to get this, you need to get this, your dog needs to get this. If there is anything we need in this cold, calloused, apathetic, backslidden day that we live in, it's we need to be disturbed by the Word of God. We need the Word of God to find that golden calf and slay it. We need the Word of God to find our groves and tear them down. We need the Word of God to uproot our idols and to disrupt our wickedness. We need it to plow up our fallow ground. We need it, man. Hey, listen, if the Word of God don't step on your toes, you probably ain't reading it right if it doesn't disturb and disrupt, if it doesn't every once in a while take the divine finger of the Holy Ghost and place it right on your most precious uh, possessions and your most precious ideals and say, lay this on the altar of sacrifice, then you're probably not reading it right. The Word of God ought to disturb us sometimes. It provides great comfort once we align ourselves with its truth. But it ought to be that the Word of God doesn't leave us unchanged and untouched. It ought to be that it uproots us and changes us in the most radical ways. The Word of God is powerful. Not only does it have power over the devil and power to disturb, but look a little further in this passage. Look down at verse number 31. The Bible says this, He left there and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. The Bible says, And they were astonished at His doctrine. I want to read that again. And they were astonished at His doctrine. Doctrine. You see that? Doctrine. D-O-C-T-R-I-N-E. Doctrine. That's a Bible word. There's a lot of, and I think well-meaning people, and I think sometimes it's a matter of semantics. I think sometimes they're trying to say they just don't want to see people fuss and fight. There's been a lot of people, especially here in East Tennessee throughout the years, that have said, we ought to stay away from doctrine. No, we ought to bury ourselves in doctrine. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for what? First, for doctrine. Doctrine means a teaching. And when, uh, when people say, we ain't got no doctrine in our church, all they're saying is, we ain't got no teaching in our church. He says, they were astonished at His doctrine. Why? For His Word was with power. Can I preach at me just a little bit? That'd be alright? You can tune out. Go ahead, if you've got hearing aids, you can turn them off. I'll wave at you when it's time to turn them back on. Hey, listen, they weren't astonished at His depth. They weren't astonished at His originality. They weren't astonished because His Word was polished. They were astonished because His Word was with power. Power from on high. The only thing that makes preaching meaningful is if it's sanctioned by divine power. That's it. It can be perfectly balanced. It can be homiletically uh, immaculate. It can have every single quality and element. It can be three points in a poem and an introduction and an outroduction. It can be everything you could ever want in a sermon. But if it ain't got the impression and the stamp and the seal of the Holy Ghost on it and the power of God dripping from it, then it's of no effect and it's meaningless. They were astonished because his word was with power. I wonder what they meant by that. Well, if you had gone to a synagogue in that day, you would have found a lot of scribes and a lot of Pharisees sitting around, asking a lot of questions, ruminating on a lot of rabbinical teachings, talking about a bunch of old fables and wives' tales, and providing a lot of questions, but not very many answers. And when the Son of God comes in, He opens a Scripture and He reads it, and He immediately speaks to it. He says, this is what the Word of God says, and I'm here to tell you that this is what it means. He didn't show up to posit questions. He showed up to provide answers. They weren't used to that. They were used to a bunch of people waxing long about various traditions and and how they ought to tithe with this or that, and who was a descendant of who, and and various... uh, What what the Bible says are things that do not edify. They don't edify. When Christ showed up, He pushed all that mess out out of the room, and He said, let me provide you divine truth and answers. The Word of God is power, powerful and has power in its doctrine. When we don't know what to do, when we have nothing but questions and we need answers, we can go to the Word of God to find them. You want to know what you need to do in life? Go to the Word of God. You want to know what decision you need to make? You're at a crossroads. You don't know whether to go left or right. You don't know what to do. Go to the Word of God. You'll find the answer. Oh my, listen, I I remember... And, and I'm not saying this fussing at young people. I just am saying I remember being a young person hearing these same things preached and not really getting it. I wish I had gotten it earlier, man. Because you're going to face things in life. You, you feel like you got all these decisions in front of you. You don't know what to do. And you feel like you're looking for answers. And it may be hard for you to believe me. You may have a thousand reasons that you don't want to believe me, but I'm here to tell you, and you'll learn it uh, by experience if you don't learn it by example, uh, that the Word of God has all of the answers of life. If you'll bury yourself in it, if you'll read it, if you'll fall in love with it, if you'll open your heart to it, if you'll submit your will to it, then you'll find that every answer that's needful in life is found within its pages. Look at verse 33. The Bible says, and in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice. See, he was all right. When all the doctors and scribes and Pharisees were ruminating upon all of their various questions, that man with the devil wasn't upset about that. That devil wasn't bothered by that. But then when divine truth begins to be spoken with divine power, all of a sudden that devil cries out. He can't handle that. All of a sudden he's disturbed and disrupted and a choice must be made. I like the kind of preaching that you either have to get right under or get out from under. And that's what the Lord Jesus preached. And this devil couldn't handle it anymore. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Probably nobody else in that synagogue other than Jesus and that devil understood who he was. But that devil understood. He knew, he recognized that power. And he said, I know who you are. And the Lord Jesus rebuked him, verse 35, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. When the devil had thrown him into the midst, he came out of him and heard him not. And they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits and they come out. Let me say that the Word of God has power over demons. Now, the word demons is a word of human invention. The Bible word is devils. But what we're speaking about is supernatural beings that do the bidding of hell and of the devil and that exercise oppressive spiritual influence in the lives of those who they're given an opportunity to do so in. And when the Lord Jesus comes face to face with this devil... He speaks a word, and the word is enough. He doesn't have to perform a miracle. He doesn't have to uh, put on a great show. He doesn't have to go through a religious ritual. The word of God is enough. It is enough. You say, preacher, what do you think about all the Roman Catholics and their exorcisms? I think it's a lot of show, to be honest with you. I don't think the devil's... It don't seem like the devil would be that interested in putting the Roman Catholics out of business the way they're wrecking and ruining lives. Seems like that's right up the devil's alley. I think it's a lot of show. I think it's a lot of nonsense. I think it's a lot that they're going to have to answer for one day that they've made merchandise of people. When Christ cast out a devil, He didn't have to give some fancy incantation. He didn't have to throw water on him. All He had to do was speak with divine authority. And immediately the devils fled. Because the Word of God has power over the demons, over the devils. You know when we're facing spiritual oppression, and and I, I've often said this, and I, I do believe this. I, I I think there's room for discussion to be had about it, but I do believe that a, a believer cannot be possessed by a devil. I believe they can be oppressed by a devil, but not possessed. Because what concord hath Christ with Belial? Uh, your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost, and I don't think the temple's going that, that the Holy Ghost is going to occupy the same temple as a devil. But I do believe that, that devils can oppress people. And when we're facing any sort of spiritual opposition, it may not be the, the kind of, uh, of supernatural demonic oppression that was transpiring in the synagogue, but any time that we're facing spiritual oppression, spiritual opposition to serve God, we are facing, the Bible says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. And I do believe that when we face satanic spiritual opposition, that the only answer for it is to rely and recline and take refuge in the Word of God. The devil has no reason to fear you or me. But the devil does fear the Word of God and the Son of God. Uh, We find that uh, Jude emphasizes this truth, says that whenever Michael the archangel disputed with Satan over the body of Moses, he did not bring against him, actually it says he durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Even Michael the angel, archangel, did not just merely rely upon his own strength or upon his own word or upon his own reputation to coerce out of the devil a, a, a reply. Instead, he invoked the name of the Lord. And he says, listen, I'm not here in, in, on my business, Satan. I'm here on the Lord's business. You may not respect me, but you will respect Him. The fact is, the devil don't have anything to fear in you or me. But he does have something to fear in the Lord. And greater is he that is in you Not greater is you, greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. It ain't about you, it's about Him. And so when faced with spiritual opposition, we can lean upon the truth of the Word of God. I'm not talking about just uh, quoting it, I'm not talking about just spouting it as as a magical incantation, I'm talking about by faith effectually leaning upon its truth. We can face all manner of spiritual opposition. And look with me at verse number 38. The Bible says this, And he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her. And he stood over her. Now think about this for just a moment. Look, Look back with me. It says in verse number 35, And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. You look over in verse number 39. He stood over her. And what did he do? He rebuked the fever. And it left her, and immediately she arose and ministered unto them. Let me say that the Word of God has power over the devil. It has power to disturb. It has power in doctrine. It has power over demons. The Word of God even has power over disease. Don't get nervous. You trust my preaching? Some of y'all get nervous. Saying he's going to start selling scraps of his suit. Amen? Somebody's going to say... But preacher, why don't He heal me? And I would say this, it ain't because He can't. It ain't because He can't. He could if He wanted to. Dot Weaver right now is laying over in Fort Sanders Hospital in about as bad a shape as a person can be on this side of glory. And if God wanted to in a moment, He could speak a word over her. And she could raise up out of that sick bed and outrun me and you and everybody else. He could. He said, but preacher, he don't always. I know he don't. But if he don't, it's not because he can't. It's because he won't. And if he won't, it's because he has a purpose, a plan, and a will in it. You know what the great power is in trusting the Word and will of God when we face suffering of any kind? And that's what disease is. It's a form of suffering. Although there's all kinds of suffering that a man can experience, but the Word of God is powerful to overcome suffering doesn't matter what you're going through. God could in a moment, by the power of His Word, change every bit of your circumstances. We see this, by the way, in the book of Job. First first 30-something chapters, Job's just wallowing in his despair and in his suffering. And none of it changes until what? Until God shows up and starts talking. Over 30 chapters, Job talked, his friends talked, everybody talked, they talked to each other, they talked about each other, they talked about life, they talked about death, and it didn't lead to nothing. God shows up and starts talking, and within a few chapters, Job has double of what he had before he endured his suffering. Word of God can change everything. What I want you to get is not that the Word of God will change your suffering, but it can change your suffering. So if it won't change your suffering, it must be because there is a will and a purpose in your suffering. We can rely on the fact that God could change our circumstances in any moment. It wouldn't take any energy, it wouldn't take any effort upon His behalf. And listen, if it is not, uh, if it's not inability that causes us to endure suffering without change, it must be providence. It must be that God has a reason for it. You may not be able to understand it. You may look at other folks not going through it and think, how come they don't have to go through it, but I'm going through it. You may look at other folks and say, well, God changed that for them. Why won't He change it for me? And again, I'd remind you, it's not because He can't. It's because He won't. Now remember, this is the same God that loved you enough to give His only begotten Son to die for you. So if He won't change your circumstances, it's not because He's mean. It's not because He hates you. It's not because He's helpless to do it but it's because God must have something a lot bigger and a lot better that He's doing in your life. Maybe something you don't ever get to see on this side of glory. I've always thought to myself, you know, one of the things that we get to read about Job's story that Job don't get to read is the first two chapters. We know why Job suffered, but to our knowledge, Job never did. Never once does God say to Job, Job, this is why you're going through what you're going through. He doesn't provide him any answers except God says, "Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where are, we, are you the one that keeps creation rolling along? Are you the one that feeds the animals? Are you the one? all God does? God don't show up and talk about Job. God shows up and talks about Himself, and that's what lifts Job's spirit, and that's what liberates Job's bondage. But never once does God tell Job why he went through what he went through. As far as we know, it wasn't until he got to heaven that he found out what God was doing in his life." But at the end of the day, it didn't matter. Job, when he died, he died in better shape than he had ever been in his entire life. He had twice as much of everything. Everything, by the way, you know, he had, he had twice of everything, except he didn't have two wives, because that wouldn't have been a blessing. Somebody say amen to that. And he didn't have two sets of kids. You know why? Number one, we have no reason to believe that he lost his wife. She shows up in that one phrase. But we have no reason to believe that she walked off and left him. And he didn't have two sets of kids. You know why? Because he didn't really lose that first set. You know what my pastor said? Growing up, after he, he lost a son, he also lost a grandson. And he used to always say this, listen, something's not lost when you know where it's at. Job didn't lose his kids. He knew where his kids was at. They was in heaven. But everything else, he got twice of. He got double over. And at the end of the day, he probably didn't never understand some of the things he went through. Didn't matter. All that mattered. He could not see God's hand, but he could trust his heart. And he could trust that even though he couldn't see what God was doing, he could trust that God was doing something and that what God was doing was the best thing to be done. The Word of God has power over disease, over all manner of suffering. So that gives you two things you ought to do. One, you ought to pray for God to change your circumstances. Hey, ain't nothing wrong with that. You're sick, pray and ask God to heal you. We're we're commanded to do so by Scripture. you got some kind of situation you're dealing with, suffering you're going through, oppression you're dealing with, pray and ask God to change it. Preacher, what if he don't? Well, if he don't, it won't be because he can't. It must be because he has something that he's doing, a greater, grander plan that you can commit and trust yourself unto.